Our scripture reading today comes from the prophet Jeremiah, the 33rd chapter, verses 14 through 16. For the first time in all my years, I forgot to come up and put my sermon back in order again. So we'll just wait. That's what Advent is all about, waiting. So the days are surely coming, says the Lord when I will fulfill the promise that I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. May God bless our understanding of this sacred text. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, the first Sunday in Advent is traditionally associated with prophecies pointing toward the coming of the Messiah. But not just his birth in the Bethlehem stable. The official readings for the first Sunday of Advent, the ones included in the, first, in the common lectionary, they point much further along in the story to a biblical prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled, the second coming of Christ. After all, the Christian story that follows the birth, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus has not ended. The story is not over. There are countless arrows in the Bible pointing to a future in which God returns and finishes what God has started. Even at the table of our Lord, we recall Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. The season of Advent dares Christians to live into this mysterious hope. We are invited to enter into a complicated spiritual arena in which we prepare for the birth of an infant savior that already happened some 2,000 years ago, even as we ready ourselves for this same savior to come again in some way, somehow. Now, every time it's my turn to preach the first Sunday of Advent, I tell myself I'm going to break with tradition. I am going to keep it light, maybe even a little merry. You should take note that I did not read the lectionary passage from Luke. That is the gospel lection for the day. That one begins with Jesus saying, There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on earth distress among nations, confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see 
the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things take place, stand up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. I did just read it. I even had Beth pull it out of the bulletin, and still, I just don't think I can do it. The first Sunday of Advent without a weird and gloomy scripture about the end of days is like Christmas Eve without a crash. The fact of the matter is this. Things are not as they should be. And we know this. We know this in the marrow of our bones. Things are not as they should be. And there's something significant about being given the time and space to be honest about this. To sit with our anxieties, to give voice to our longings, to acknowledge our frailty. In Advent, we hear that our redemption is drawing near. This strikes me as the biblical equivalent of a mother gently speaking words of reassurance to the kids in the back seat on a long journey. We're almost there. My friend Heidi Newmark, a pastor and writer who lit, serves a church in a rough neighborhood in the Bronx, puts it this way. Probably the reason I love Advent so much is that it is a reflection of how I feel most of the time. I might not feel sorry during Lent when the liturgical calendar begs repentance. I might not feel victorious, even though it is Easter morning. I might not feel full of the Spirit, even though it is Pentecost and the liturgy spins out fiery gusts of ecstasy. But during Advent, I am always in sync with the season. Advent unfailingly embraces and comprehends my reality. And what is that? I think of the Spanish word anelo, or longing. Advent is when the church can no longer contain its unfulfilled desire. And the cry of Angelo bursts forth. Come, Lord Jesus. O come, O come, Emmanuel. We long for so many things. We long for the gift, but we also want the love and attention it represents. We want the roast to turn out right, for those relatives to get along, for the children's faces to light up on Christmas morning. We want to sing our favorite carols, recreate our favorite traditions, eat our favorite Christmas cookies. We want all of these things, and yet these are just the tip of the iceberg. We have desires tucked away in the deepest parts of our souls, so potent they can hardly be expressed with words. The childless woman longs for the baby who is so beloved yet unconceived. 
The aimless man yearns for meaningful work. The broken-hearted community wishes the tragedy could somehow unhappen. We want so many things. Longing, desire, is at the heart of creation, woven into the very physics of our world. The tug of gravity beckons to the clouds, calling the rain, the snow, to come down. It feels so good to climb into bed at night because we at last succumb to the pull of the earth, inviting us to rest. I think I've shared with you before one of my favorite metaphors for longing. It's a description of Patsy Cline's singing voice shared on NPR years ago. The unrequited love of a heartsick suspension bridge for the river that flows beneath it. And just as powerful and irresistible as the pull of gravity is the pull of our hearts toward God. I sense that we long for God even when we don't realize it, even when we call this longing by another name even when we try to fulfill this longing with sorry substitutes. We want so many things, but when it all comes down to it, our wanting is for things to be made right. And there could be no holier longing than this. As painful as it can be, to want. And God knows some desires are so consuming they can scarcely be survived. There is something profoundly sacred about longing for redemption and reconciliation and restoration. The prophet Jeremiah's words are full of their hopefulness is that much more poignant when we remember that the prophet was speaking to a people who were utterly devastated. You might even call them God-forsaken, except for one small detail. They were the ones who had forsaken God. They had turned their backs on the one who had made his face to shine upon them. They had neglected the one who had delivered them from slavery. They had disconnected themselves from the one who had knit them together in their mother's wombs. The consequences of their faithlessness were dire. The city of Jerusalem had been ransacked. The Israelites were in exile. They had no justice. They witnessed no righteousness. All of their favorite things were a long lost memory. These prophetic words of hope were spoken to a people filled with despair. I love all the delights of this season. 
but I suspect most of us can only really enjoy these things if we don't use them as a distraction against despair. Christmas carols are no good if we are only singing to drown out the cries of longing and lamentation echoing everywhere. To get to the holiday cheer, we need a spiritual honesty that only the church seems to really get. We need a sanctuary where just one slender candle is lit. We need a table set with a meal that feeds our deepest hungers for love and grace and communion. We need an hour where it is safe to laugh and to sing and to pray and to cry. We need a hope that doesn't shy away from our fears and our forebodings. We need the acknowledgement that we live in a treacherous in-between, trying our darndest to trust that God really is going to fulfill God's promises in our lives and in the world. The days are surely coming, friends. Our redemption is drawing near. It's been a long, long journey, but we're almost there. Just a bit longer now, almost there. May it be so.